Welcome to episode 51 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Von Vladke, and my co-host Steve Seidman will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the terrorist attack in London, Ontario, the NATO summit, and Lieutenant General Rouleau's decision to play golf with fans. Our feature interview is with Dr. Leah West, who is an assistant professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. At the very end of this episode, stay tuned for Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. Stephanie, how are you doing? Doing great, Steve. Finally feels like we're transitioning into a summer battle rhythm. <laughs> it's a very different way to spend my weeks in terms of work and more focus on graduate supervision, catching up on research projects and so on. What about you, Steve? I'm doing all right. Spent yesterday chasing down vaccination sites and appointments in Ottawa. We should let our audience know that we're going to be taking a break from podcasting for uh, a little bit, that we'll miss the next episode in our bi-weekly cycle. We'll be back in the second week of July, as we wanted to give Melissa Jennings, our extraordinary podcast producer, some time off. And so if you've got any questions or comments for the podcast, we'll take them, but we're not going to be responding to them until the middle of July. I think it'll be Bastille Day, I think is when we'll next be on or somewhere around there. I'm hoping that between now and then, we will not have any more episodes of senior officers having really bad judgment that we'd have to talk about. When you saw that the vice chief and the head of the Navy were golfing with retired CDS, John Vance, Steph, how did you react to that? There are two things that irk me about Lieutenant General Brulo's statement, and you may have seen excerpts of it in the, in the news today, but the first mm -hmm. is the duty of care line, because mm. who do you really care to express solidarity with as VCDS in this moment where the CAF is experiencing a crisis of leadership tied to sexual misconduct? Rulo is choosing Vance, and that sends a signal to victims and survivors, both serving and retired. Duty of care was the primary justification Rulo used to explain why he reached out mm -hmm. to Vance to see how he was doing, expressing concerns about his mental health. But that line stayed with me. And the second thing that bothered me is that Rulo is clearly taking the fall for Vice Admiral Baines. What mm -hmm. Baines came up with as a statement, basically, I'm sorry for not understanding, mm -hmm. falls a bit short of what we expect of leadership at that level, especially at this time. What were your initial reactions? My, my reaction was they just don't get it. They really just don't get it. Baines' statement, you know, his first statement was, you know, my first reaction was, was when Baines was justifying it by saying, well, I'm sorry that my public support for Vance was perceived in this way. It's like, why are you giving public support to Vance? Why are you doing that? And it's also problematic because they, you know, they cleared out the golf course for them to go through because they wanted to keep it quiet. So they knew they were doing something that was untoward, that was probably not going to play well in the public. And so if you're going to do something that's not going to do well in the public, then don't do it. So that was my first reaction. And then, yeah, I saw the same thing in Rouleau's letter that he was, he was duty of care to the retired and now disgraced chief of defense staff, John Vance. And I thought that was really problematic because again, it's like duty for whom? And this sexual misconduct crisis we've had for the past six months is also an abuse of power, double standards crisis. 
And so the, the challenge has been about how does the current crop of officers see their responsibilities? And if they always see themselves being more responsible to, more loyal to their brothers who are at their rank or above and not to the people below them, then that's a real problem. He was also saying, you know, one of the questions that came up was the conflict of interest because the vice chief of defense staff sits on top of the investigative service within the military. And so the, the investigators are currently going through a couple of naval officers, Donald and Edmondson, and going through, you know, Vance's records and whatever they're doing. Ultimately, the guy who's at the top of the chain of command right now is the vice chief of defense staff for, for that, those offices. And so he denied that he ever, you know, put any pressure on the provost marshal or the other people below him. But perceptions are realities that, you know, an appearance of a conflict of interest is a conflict of interest. Uh, somebody uh, said that online, uh, Lauren Dobson Hughes, and, I, and it's very correct in this matter that the vice chief in particular, given his responsibility for the provost marshal and for the Canadian investigative service and all the rest, means you have to really be careful about this stuff. And Rula was not. The timing for us was good because... In our podcast today, we have Leah West is going to be speaking about the report that former Supreme Court Justice Morris Fish put out, where he went through the military justice system and raised all kinds of questions about how to make things more independent so that you wouldn't have situations like this. And so please do listen to that interview because it's much more salient today than it was, you know, the, this issue was last week because we have a real live example of the challenge of having the vice chief of defense staff in the chain of command on issues of investigation uh, of other people in the military, particularly people at the top of the chain of command. Yeah, that was my reaction. I found it appalling, but not entirely surprising because it's this pattern of bad judgment that we've seen over the course of time. And so it wasn't just Vance. It wasn't just McDonald. It wasn't just Edmondson. There's something really going on here about an old boys network that sees themselves as being more privileged. And if you develop a sense of impunity over the years because of how these things have been treated in the past, of course, you behave in the present as if you're not responsible for these things, that you're not going to be held responsible for these things. The one last thing I'll say about this is Rulo resigns now as vice chief for the defense staff. He was going to be gone in a couple weeks anyway. He was being given a position, a strange position as advisor, strategic advisor to the acting chief defense staff, which I think now that's dead. But him stepping down as vice chief is not really being held accountable because that was going to happen next week. You know, quitting a job, resigning, retiring from, or whatever you want to call it, is not much of a sacrifice. So it's not really a large penalty being paid by Rouleau for this poor judgment. And so I think, you know, him trying to take the bullet for Baines may be successful, but Baines showed really poor judgment. And I don't know if he's going to really pay much of a price for it. And so again, is there impunity or are there consequences? So one of the complications here is that I had thought that Rulo was already replaced by Francis Allen as vice chief of defense staff, but I'm guessing that she was staying in her role as the Canada's representative, military representative to NATO until after the summit, which happened this week. So that might explain why that we haven't had the turnover. So I guess that leads us to the question of, of what happened at the summit? You know, in the old days before the pandemic, you and I would occasionally go to these summits and go to the side party uh, mm -hmm. where we'd have all these experts and academics in a tent nearby where we'd see uh, some of the leaders come by and some of the other officials come by and brief us about what was going on. Uh, alas, we could not be at this particular summit because there was no side party. But Steph, I'm sure you followed the discussions. I'm sure you read pieces of the communique. What are your thoughts on what was accomplished in court? Where is the summit this, this time around? It was in Brussels. In Brussels. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts about the, the summit? So I was eager to see how the communique would shape up and it was released yesterday. And there were some follow-up 
items from the London summit in December of 2019. And that's the last time I had a chance to attend events like these. And Steve, you know, next time we, we get to go might be for the next summit in Spain. So Spain has volunteered to host the next one. And I hope that we get to do a, a little sideshow Steph and Steve podcast interview from, from there on location. But the most important thing of this summit, in my view, was Biden signaling that the U.S. is back as a reliable ally and expressing the U.S. commitment to Article 5. Biden went as far to call it a sacred commitment. So I'm sure everyone was satisfied there. You know, Restoring democracy was a big theme, defending the rules-based order, no surprises there. I guess the change in tone with regards to Russia being explicitly identified as a threat is an interesting development. There is a much longer list of what Russia is doing wrong than in past communiques. Terrorism is the second threat that is explicitly mentioned. And then climate change is mentioned as a threat multiplier. COVID-19 is obviously you know, a new appearance on the communique. And then I was mentioning follow-up items from the London meeting in 2019. And so here you see an endorsement of the 2030 agenda. So that is the report that was tabled by a group of experts. And that is a culmination of the work they had been tasked with in London. So we are seeing that in the communique, as well as the announcement that there will be a new strategic concept by the next summit, because the current NATO strategic concept dates back to 2010. So long overdue that there is an updated strategic concept. Things that are new as well in terms of this communique is the announcement that the mission in Afghanistan will be coming to an end. And that certainly contrasts with the uh, expanded role that NATO is going to be taking up in Iraq through the NATO mission in Iraq. I think experts will also pick up on the clarifications with regards to what counts and what doesn't count for Article 5 in terms of hybrid warfare, cyber and space. And maybe folks will be disappointed when it comes to the language on, on China. The Communique addressed that China has a growing influence and that its international policies do represent a challenge for the alliance, but it's very, very uh, neutral language in my view. And I think that shows just how much disagreement there is within the alliance on, on the question of how to deal with China, but also how to deal with China in terms of the alliance's role in that uh, strategic competition landscape. Then, yeah, those are the main points that uh, stick out to me in terms of reading the communique. It was interesting to see that it was right after the, the G7. And I think that the G7 has the, has more strongly worded language in terms of its communique and certainly strong enough, at least to provoke a reaction from China who called it slander. So those are my initial thoughts. And of course, as our episode drops tomorrow, President Biden will be meeting with Putin in Geneva. So a shame that we won't be able to loop that into our episode, but I think People are always excited about these bilateral summits between uh, U.S. and Russian presidents. Well, let me ask you this. There's a lot that you've discussed there. And I think one of the things I'm curious about is, is NATO 2030. What is the basic idea of NATO 2030? And what do you think are, is the progress being made towards it? How do, how do you evaluate it? It's difficult to evaluate it. But I think the key point of the NATO 2030 agenda was political consultation within the alliance in terms of closer coordination when it comes to discussing threats and addressing threats. And yes, of course, that concerns 
Russia and China, the threat of terrorism, because there are always differences in terms of threat perception within the alliance. That's very clear when you listen to Turkey and its emphasis on the threat of terrorism versus the Baltic states and their emphasis of Russia as the main Mm -hmm. threat. But I think that when the 2030 agenda was endorsed, what I think is the other signal is tightening political consultation for managing intra-alliance disagreements and and disputes. And there the dispute between Greece and, and Turkey comes to mind more specifically. What I'm less clear on is exactly what changes will be made to these political consultation mm-hmm. mechanisms. And certainly the 60 plus page document, which is the result of the expert group's deliberation offers, they offer some paths for this, but the communique always uses very succinct language in its main bullets. So it does have a number of sub bullets that are explicitly worded on the 2030 agenda, but what it's always short on is sort of the vision for implementing that plan. So I think that we'll see it unfold over the, the next few months. And that's where being there in person is really helpful because you do get to interact with NATO officials and ask them about the machinery of how these decisions will likely play out in the next few months. And that's what you don't get when you're somewhat disconnected from these conversations. And I don't know about you, Steve, but I didn't feel as comfortable this year saying yes to media requests versus when we're there on the ground. And not only do we get to listen to where leaders and and ministers walk across the stage and share some tidbits from their deliberations within the the rooms that we're not allowed into, but you get to, to interact with experts from other countries who have different areas of focus when it comes to talking about NATO. You get to interact with journalists from other countries and you get to talk about it, uh, you know, over two and a half days and really immerse yourself in the nitty gritty of what ultimately ends up on the communique. So long-winded answer to say that, yes, you know, in, in principle, there are a number of items that caught my eye in the communique, but the devil is always in the detail and the plan for implementing those decisions. And that's where, you know, I suppose we get back to field work in the next few months and, and hopefully can go back to Brussels and, and hopefully can plan to go to, to Spain so that we can, you know, follow up on a lot of these agenda items and how they'll all shake out. Deterrence and defense will be another one. Obviously, and we'll see this on Wednesday, I'm sure, in terms of the bilateral summit between Putin and Biden, you know, the arms control regime is a bit in tatters. And so the community, <laughs> as it often does, puts a lot of emphasis on this. And there were some signals that deterrence and defense posture would be a big focus area as well for, for NATO in the coming months. And that's no surprise given you know, the upcoming deadline of the New Star Treaty and, and so on, and the other arms control arrangements that have fallen through the cracks in the past years. It's funny you mentioned the media, because I actually did do a little media yesterday, even though I don't have the, the same kind of knowledge that we would get if we were hanging out at the, the NATO side party. But it was a, a question that was very easy to answer, which is, what about Ukraine? And the answer is, no, it's not going to happen. In fact, I, I did post a Mean Girls meme of stop talking about Ukraine becoming a member of NATO. It's not going to happen because just as NATO is split on what the threats are, 
there's not a whole lot of fans of Ukrainian membership in NATO anytime soon. Those countries that have Ukrainian diaspora, that would be the United States and Canada, the biggest fans of it. But those who are closer are not quite as, as in favor of this. And in large part, because here's the question, if Russia has been essentially at war with Ukraine since 2014, if you let Ukraine into NATO, does that mean that NATO is at war with Russia? And I think that nobody really wants to answer that question or face that direction head on. And I'm sure that very nobody really wants to admit a member at this moment in time that is currently engaged in such a difficult situation. It would be really putting NATO in a very difficult spot about what does Article 5 mean if you admit a country that has part of its territory occupied by the Russians, that would be Crimea, and then Russia support supporting armed elements, separatists within uh, Ukraine. So that's not going to happen anytime soon. And it comes up at every summit. And I was asked essentially, well, why isn't Canada talking more about it? And, it, and the answer is Canada doesn't want to talk about it because it, it knows it's not going to happen. And it doesn't want to create a lot of waves about it, even domestically. It doesn't want the Ukrainian Canadians to get upset about it. And the way that the government is handling it is by continuing to train the Ukrainian military bilaterally in coordination with some of our allies, but it's not a NATO mission. And so that that's going on. That's continuing. And I guess we should uh, wrap up our, our conversation by talking about the uh, threats close to home. The challenge of NATO dealing with terrorism is a lot of our terrorist threats are no longer the transnational ones emanating from you know Afghanistan or Syria, but they're emanating from our own people, form of you know, white supremacy and Islamophobia. And so last week's attack where one guy ran into a family and killed four members of the family and hurt the youngest member of the family. You know, that, that you know, shook me, not because I'm surprised that this is happening, but to see it, because we've had other attacks against Muslims in Canada, but to see sort of the use of essentially ISIS tactics by the white supremacists, Islamophobes, now, I don't know really this guy's background, but he clearly targeted Muslim people for, for his own depraved reasons. So, you know, it was appalling, but not really surprising again. What are your thoughts on this, Steph? I... I think you're right to, to point out that calling it a terrorist act is important because it needs to be clear that far-right hate groups represent a threat that is just as hateful and deadly as those attacks inspired by terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or Daesh. It's something research and activist communities have been saying for years, of course. So I was reassured to see that authorities went beyond simple murder charges and acknowledged very quickly that this was an ideologically motivated crime where a family was targeted for their religion. So right now, I think we just all have a responsibility to recognize that this terrorist attack will intensify feelings of fear in Muslim communities across Canada. And now we always have to think about what we can do, you know, in our own communities, showing solidarity and, and support, I think is critical at this time. So yeah, I was... Uh, just as uh, sad as, as everyone was in, in just witnessing this tragic manifestation of Islamophobic violence. And I think what you need to do is call out those who amp up Islamophobia, that this has been something that's been very political mm -hmm. the past, you know, several years. There was discussion of a barbaric cultural practices tip line in the 2015 election campaign. And there was language about barbaric cultural practices, that was, which was targeting I think the Muslim community of Canada think that it's hard for me anyway to say that the law passed in Quebec about 
wearing religious garb wasn't targeting Muslim women. Yes, other other religious minorities were also targeted, but the face of that was, re- you know, the image of that was really the hijab. And that creates an environment that fosters an environment that gives permission to other folks to display hatred towards marginalized groups in our society. And so I, we need to speak out about that and we need to notice when elements of the media rely on tropes and imagery that are problematic. This is not just a one guy problem. It's not just that this is one random lunatic. It's part of a larger manifestation. We've seen other attacks on on, on Muslims in Canada. And it is very striking what a contradiction that is between that and the imagery we had, what was it, five years ago of uh, Trudeau and others welcoming Syrian refugees to our country. So I, I think we need to do a better job of, of calling out those who are who are amping up the hate and the fear. We need to make that kind of behavior. We need to change the permission structure so that way those people who do that are shamed and shunned. That way we don't have folks who might engage in violence being given permission by that kind of rhetoric and that kind of legislation. And of course, I, I noticed some really smart commentary from uh, Professor Leah West on, on this too. And she is our featured guest today. You mentioned that earlier on the episode. Leah has her degree in law. She can completed her SJD at, at Toronto's Faculty of Law. And she's one of my colleagues at Carleton. And two weeks ago, we were discussing our quick read of the Morris Fish report about military justice. And we both said, well, we don't really know that much about this. We should get an expert. And so we got an expert to talk about it. So the interview deals entirely with the Morris Fish report. It does not address Leah's role as one of the survivors of sexual assault in the military. She's been also very sharp on that, responding on Twitter to you know, Rouleau's statement and things like that. But this this conversation that people are about to hear on our podcast is entirely about the Fish Report because that by itself, I think, is an important topic about how do we deal with the military justice problem or problems in military justice. It's not the only thing that's involved with the culture of the military or the sexual misconduct problem or the abuse of power problem, but all these problems have to be attacked in different ways and, and deal with reforms across the CAF and across D&D. And so this is one piece of it. So that's our interview for this week. I'm very grateful that she said yes, and that you were able to interview her so quickly after the public release of the Fish Report. We're very lucky. And I know she's a very busy person, especially rare. We'll give that a listen. And as always, Steve, it's wonderful to talk to you and stay well. Yes, and I'll miss you, Steph. We're not going to talk for a few weeks because we won't have a podcast in two weeks. But enjoy the next few days, weeks, uh, with a little more time to yourself, to your family. Good luck hunting down vaccines and be well. Thank you, Steve. Glad to have Leah West with us today. Leah is one of my colleagues at, at Nipsia. She is a lawyer by training. She works for a defense firm. And she used to be in the Canadian Armed Forces as, as someone who fought with tank shells rather than with legal briefs. We're glad to have you here with us today. Welcome to Battle Rhythm, Leah. Thanks for having me. Justice Fish made 107 uh, recommendations, which suggest that much is broken. Either that or he's really persnickety. So I guess the first struck to me was that the requirement that military judges should resign their commissions and be civilians. What is your take on that? I actually think it's a good recommendation. A lot of his major recommendations to how the military justice system functions and is organized are about ensuring 
independence between those individuals who are laying charges, doing investigations and adjudicating service offenses and, and offenses under the code of service discipline. And by having judges remain within the chain of command, Justice Fish finds that there is either a perception of lack of independence or possibility of a lack of independence. So his recommendation here is to have judges who are not in the military, um, but who have significant military service. So it doesn't necessarily require individuals to resign necessarily upon becoming judges. That could be one way of doing it. Do you want to be a judge? Yes. Okay. Well, you've got to resign. It could be people who retire after long services in the reserve force as JAGs. It could be people who, like myself, have serious military experience and become lawyers after the fact. He doesn't specify how that military service and legal knowledge, 10 years of, uh, 10 years of legal experience needs to you know, be combined. But he does say that by separating out the adjudicator from the chain of command, what you ultimately do is you eliminate the chance that, you know, a judge who is a lower rank, for example, than the person being prosecuted or a witness or, um, you know, someone who's prosecuting the charge. There could be issues around that. There could be uh, concerns about promotion for someone out of the position after the fact, concerns about their tenure as a judge if they don't satisfy the chain of command. All those things persist while a judge remains inside the chain of command that could be alleviated by adopting his suggestions. And some countries have specialized civilian courts instead. Would that make sense to you or is that would require too much of a development of expertise that they wouldn't otherwise have? Well, what he's actually recommended here is the creation of a specialized military court. Mm -hmm. Currently, the way it works is the courts are a product of you know, the National Defense Act. Mm -hmm. So they actually are a product of the executive, right? And managed through the executive and its functions rather than the judicial branch of government. And so what Justice Face suggests is the creation of a military court of Canada that would be taken out of the hands of the, the CDS, the Ministry of National Defense, be created as a superior court of Canada and run mm. independently. Again, to help bolster the credibility of an independence of not just the decision makers, but when you think about a justice system, there's so much that goes into it. And when the justice system is dependent on the executive, there's concerns about independence and impartiality. So you support this recommendation for a military court? I do, yes. In reading the, the report, or at least my skimming of the recommendations, there were recommendations referring to the provost marshal. What is the provost marshal? What do they do? You can think of them like the RCMP commissioner but for military police officers. So they are, you know, the highest ranking military police officer in the Canadian Armed Forces. Currently, they report to the Vice Chief of Defense Staff. So again, this idea that those who are investigating offenses within the Canadian Armed Forces are still subject to orders, to direction from someone within the chain of command. So Again, part of the recommendations is about creating more independence for the provost marshal. They want to change the name to provost general 
mm-hmm. to increase the rank to Brigadier General and to actually make them directly reportable to a deputy minister or a minister rather than someone within the chain of command to again create that separation between the chain of command and those investigating other members of the chain of command. Okay, so there's that consistent theme throughout much of the recommendations. Yes. Well, this is a good segue to talk about Provost Marshall, is that one of the other recommendations was to move things to have the military police rather than the units be the ones who deal with allegations? Yeah, and so that's very much an overgeneralization. And this is really where things start to get more specific. There's a lot of very specific recommendations about who should investigate what types of offenses, what different types of offenses should remain service offenses Mm -hmm. versus whether or not there should be investigations by civilian law enforcement versus Mm -hmm. military police. It is quite detailed here Mm -hmm. when we break it down. And the other thing we need to keep in mind is that there's also Bill C-77, which brought in or will bring in a series of changes to the military justice system that is actually going to change the ideas or how, what is now summary trials, there'll be summary hearings, which will change the potential outcomes available. So it won't be a criminal penalty anymore. So there's, there's a lot wrapped up in all of that, which would be, you know, a very long and really boring podcast. But again, the point behind Justice Fish's recommendations is always to ensure this kind of arm's length impartiality fairness, and also to ensure that the types of procedural safeguards that exist for accused and for victims that exist in the civilian justice system are replicated to the greatest extent possible in the military justice system while also trying to ensure that the need for the maintenance of discipline, that the swift maintenance of discipline is also maintained. So all of his recommendations are with that in mind. And to a large extent, I I think that they all make a tremendous amount of sense, but there is one area that he touched on and left. So that is around the issue of unit investigations. So to back up, right, you can have unit investigations um, that lead to what is now summary trials. Military police can assist in those. And then there's also the court martials proceeding, which is for generally more serious offenses. Unit investigations are conducted by members of the unit. Again, like I said, they can be done with assistance from military police. And then they're, you know, I'm using air quotes here, tried by presiding officers, again, who are senior members of that unit. And part of what Justice Fish heard was this concern that there was some abuse of power, a lack of impartiality in those investigations, in unit investigations. He heard that from individuals, but he didn't really dig into it and really didn't bring about any recommendations on this idea that investigations done at the unit level may not meet the standards that we of fairness and procedural safeguards that we would have for something that currently can result in pretty significant penalties and until recently could result in you know criminal code offenses it was only a couple of years ago where you wouldn't necessarily have a criminal conviction if you were prosecuted from a unit investigation so he doesn't dig in there and that's one area where i would have liked him to see more done just especially because of all of the concerns around abuse of power we've been hearing about in the military lately 
And, and for me, when I read it, I was struck by referring to things to the MPs. So I understand that if you have a provost general, the MPs' bosses are now more independent, but the MPs themselves are still within the themselves have their careers depend on sort of the ordinary processes within the military. So they're not that independent. And at least as far as I can tell from the past five or six months of coverage of the various allegations and and complaints, the MPs have not really covered themselves in glory either. And so I guess the question then is if we have the MPs take more of a role, is that really fixing things since they're still embedded in this organization that is you know, you can choose your words, uh, broken, chock full of toxic masculinity, whatever it is. If you have the MPs doing the work, is that really going to assure survivors that their cases are going to be investigated thoroughly? So I guess I'm curious as to, as to your take on that. Yeah. So I guess there's a couple things there. So any military organization, I mean, the RCMP considers themselves a paramilitary organization is going to be inherently hierarchical. So there is the idea of having to satisfy your superiors. Having been in the military, my experience of them, of MPs is that they were always apart, but separate <laughs> from the rest of the mm-hmm. military. Mm-hmm. And there really was that kind of you know, sense of segregation between the MPs and other uniform members. But in the context of sexual assault and sexual misconduct, I think a lot of different things get wrapped up there. The idea of investigating sexual misconduct versus criminal offenses that arise to the level of a criminal code sexual offense Where's the line between whether that should be a unit investigation, a military investigation? Should the military investigation pursue if the victim doesn't want to participate? All of these things are complicated. They're complicated in the civilian system. They're equally complicated in the military system. And I think the important thing to remember here is just as Fish in making his review on how the responsibility of military police officers was thinking about all service offenses and service offenses and then criminal code offenses that can be prosecuted within the military justice system. He wasn't just thinking about sexual assault. He does have specific recommendations to deal with sexual assault, but none of them really target the MPs and how they investigate. So that's not really answering your question. I just think it's his review is bigger. The issues are complicated no matter where you are. And I don't really think that at the heart of the sexual misconduct, sexual assault issue in the forces is the fact that the military police are within the chain of command. To me, that's maybe one element, but it's not the most significant factor that is causing the problems. Okay. Well, there are 107 recommendations here. And so I'm trying to figure out what that means. Does it mean that the problems are widespread and deep? Is it just that fish was very, very deliberate and specific? You know, it provides us with two possibilities. Either one is, is that there's so many different things that have to be changed that we're going to lose track, that we're we're not going to focus. Or the other is that we actually have a very thorough checklist of the changes that need to be made. And we'll know, you know, in five years, how many of these things have been done. So Looking at 107 recommendations, what is your take on that? Is that a good sign or a bad sign of this particular review? I think it means the review was very thorough, but I think you need to put the review in context. So this is a review of the military justice system writ large that is conducted now every seven years. Okay. And so the civilian justice system, while yes, has to be updated through legislation, is also updated regularly through the common law. 
mm-hmm. um, in terms of procedural obligations, et cetera, and is also updated quite frequently by legislation in a way that, yes, Bill C-77 has come through, but it hasn't yet all been implemented. The updates to the military justice system, and it's not just talking about military justice system in this report either. A number of this has to do with Military Complaints Commission, and there's a number of recommendations having to do with the grievance system, which is an entirely separate kind of issue if we think about it. It's, you know, grievances of employees to their employers. So that is an entire other aspect of things that, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time reviewing because that's not my can of worms. But part of it is the fact that it's a long period of time to review things. Things within the military justice system are not updated as routinely and regularly. But at the same time, I will say that there are a number of recommendations here that build on recommendations from previous reviews that were not done. So Justice Lemire in 2003, he recommended that there be a separate military court, right? And that was never done. There are a number of recommendations here where uh, Justice Fish apparently went back to the office of the JAG and said, what happened with these recommendations? You know, how far along did you try to get to recommend uh, implement these recommendations? And the answers he got back were rather unsatisfactory. So other parts of his recommendations here are about, you need to do a better job in A, tracking these things. Mm. You need to do a better job of collecting data and you need to prepare, prepare the next person doing this in seven years with a list of all the recommendations that have happened from my review presumably from the Justice Arbor review, et cetera, and what you've done along the way to implement them. Mm-hmm. Because I shouldn't be having to do this and the, the next person shouldn't have to do this every time. There should be a way of tracking that. Mm-hmm. And that has not been well done in the past. And a lot of the justification for why things fell off the table was it was just too low on the priority, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know how long that's a satisfactory answer when you're talking about issues of people's rights, when you're talking about issues that lead to the perpetuation of sexual misconduct in the King of Forces. The fact that things fell off the priority list can no longer be a satisfactory answer for why we're not mm-hmm. taking these recommendations that are well-founded and presumably in this case have been accepted by the government and not implemented. Okay, so overall, what is your assessment of these recommendations? I think that they are very detailed. A number of them where they require more thorough input from stakeholders rather than specific, you know, legislative changes it calls for a working group to deal with the more nuanced elements of the recommendations. I think that's fantastic and I hope to see that those are implemented quickly and then don't fall off the table down the road. I think the review really does a good job of trying to bring the military justice system on par with the civilian justice system because Yes, as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, you give up a number of your charter rights, right? You just do. You sacrifice a great deal, but that doesn't mean that you then deserve to lose all rights when you're accused of something, right? And it also doesn't mean that you lose all rights when you're a victim of something. And the recommendations in this review really do try and say, yes, you do sacrifice some rights, but we need to do a better job of protecting those rights that can be protected, should be protected. And we owe you as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces because of what you sacrifice when you become a member of the CAF. And it really does update 
the justice system in a way that we've seen the civilian justice system be updated in the last several years. And the one thing I'll say is that it calls repeatedly on uh, the victim's rights um, element of Bill C-77 to be implemented quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we've heard with all the discussions around sexual assault, again, the the acting CDS talking about implementing the Bill of Rights, the Victims' Bill of Rights quickly. And, you know, this bill has been in place since 2019 and we haven't seen it yet. It needs to be done. And, you know, the fact that it's just not a priority no longer is satisfactory. I'm optimistic that given the apparent acceptance of the need for external review that we see in the CAF now will translate into like real work to implement these recommendations. Well, there is this larger context. And so one of the questions is, while the Arbor Commission or report will deal with a lot more of the issues directly related to sexual assault uh, and abuse of power, military justice is part of that picture. And so given these recommendations, if most of this is implemented, do you think it's going to make a big difference in how people see the CAF? Will will it help people trust the system more or are they still worry where this really doesn't address the abuse of power problem that, that has been the story of the past six months? I think it's twofold. So the abuse of power thing and the sexualized nature of the CAF really is a cultural issue. And as Justice Deschamps said, that sexualized nature permits more criminal activity of a sexual nature, so sexual assault, etc. And what I think needs to happen, obviously, is, you know, to address the root cultural issues, but victims need to be able to come forward on their own time, not because they're mandated to report, which is currently the requirement. They need to have a place they can go to report that is external to their chain of command that won't necessarily require them to then take criminal action if they don't want it, but can provide them with sound legal advice. And then where action is desired by the victim, where the same organization that's external to the chain of command can be responsible for seeing that action carried through. Whether that just be in terms of some sort of oversight or review of sexual assault prosecutions within the military justice system. I mean, that's all up for justice, our board to decide. But having an external body where victims feel comfortable bringing forward their complaints is absolutely necessary to deterrence, denunciation, and prosecution of bad behavior, you need to see that the behavior is being treated with the appropriate level of severity. You need to see that this conduct is being treated seriously and others who might engage in that behavior need to also see that that behavior is not tolerated and is being punished in accordance with the law right? To deter that behavior, but also to see other people bring that conduct forward. It's a cycle, right? You need people to feel comfortable to bring it forward. You need those who are guilty of bad behavior or sexual assault and worse to be found guilty. You need to see that that conduct is not tolerated to prevent other people from thinking that it is, it is fine. Right. And, and all of that will help bolster this idea that a culture that currently exists is impermissible. But you can't do that and also not target the underlying culture, right? You need to do both things. And that's why Justice Arbor's review is really important because it won't just look at, okay, how do we prosecute these things better? 
right? That's not going to solve the whole problem. That's not the whole picture. You need to look at, you know, the 360 view of what in the military allows this culture to perpetuate itself over and over and over again. Justice Fish does have some good recommendations, and I think that they will be taken up swiftly. I think that they can go hand in hand with anything Justice Arbor does down the road, but solving the military justice angle of sexual misconduct is not going to solve the sexual misconduct problem in and of itself. So this is the fish recommendations are necessary, but not sufficient. Absolutely. Is there anything that, Mo- that uh, Justice Morris missed that you wish that he had addressed? Other than that bit, I talked about unit investigations. Mm-hmm. No. And the other thing that I will just raise for everyone is that, he, and this is a topic near and dear to my heart as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces Right-Wing Extremism Network, is that he does talk about hateful conduct. And he does recommend creating explicitly new service offenses for not only sexual misconduct, but hateful conduct as well. And that he wants to see greater emphasis on training military police members to understand hateful conduct and to see how that might be prosecuted as a service offense. So he he does recommend a working group on, on that specific issue as well, that I think, again, goes back to that cultural piece as well that needs to be targeted. And I think does overlap to some extent with the cultural issues that Justice Arbor will ultimately be investigating. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, Leah, because this stuff gets very complicated very fast and you've made it clear what some of these recommendations mean and how they fit into the broader picture. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us and hopefully someday soon I'll be able to see you down the hall. (laughs) I hope so. Thank you. was a pretty heavy episode for our podcast. So I'd like to recommend three very, very silly pop culture things to watch. The first is Modoc. Modoc is a strange villain in the Marvel Semitic universe, in the Marvel comics. Uh, Modoc is an evil genius that rides in a chair. He's voiced by Patton Oswalt. And it's really about his marital problems, his family problems, and his ineptness as an evildoer. And so it's really delightful. You have John Hamm plays Iron Man, who shows up every once in a while. But it's really about the home life of a supervillain. And it's just so silly. It's an animated uh, show on the Disney Channel, Disney+. Plus. Uh, the second is Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva is about uh, a girl band that reunites 20 years later, trying to get their musical careers back online. And it features Sarah Bareilles, uh, the singer, Renee Goldsberry, I want to say, who is from the Hamilton cast, Dizzy Phillips, and a few other folks. And it's just so silly. They're all pretty inept in a, a variety of ways, but they're struggling to overcome bad management in the past to restart their career. And so they have them singing their old songs. And yeah, there's only four members of Girls 5 ever because one of them died. And so it's always weird to see in the, in the past the, the, the fifth singer. But it's really silly and it's a good distraction from, from things. And the last one is also a musical, a TV show, which is We Are Lady Parts. We Are Lady Parts is a show about a group of British Muslim women who have formed a punk band. And so it's about, in part, the struggles of being a Muslim woman who want to keep some traditions alive while yet expressing their own individuality and their own rebellion against 
whatever. And so it's an incredibly silly show, but it's also delightful. And so it's, it's, uh, we are lady parts. You get that via Crave. Anyway, so those are my recommendations for this week. Be well, good luck getting vaccinated and let's keep on keeping our distance until we get through this thing. Take care. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.